Well, good morning. Uh, my name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. So this morning we are going to continue in our series uh, in actually Psalm 91. So we've been going through a series in the book of Psalms called Knowing and Enjoying God. And so uh, we are actually continuing through part two of Psalm 91. So last week we did part one in Psalm 91 where we really kind of honed in on the first two verses but in so many ways, the first two verses really sum up what this psalm or song is about. Okay? And so, verse 1, it says this, Psalm 91. Look with me. Um, psalm 91, what's on the screens, you have your Bibles, you can scroll, whatever you want to do. Uh, psalm 91, verse 1, it says this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Like right up front, it's clear that this song is about God's protection and deliverance. But more than that, I want you to see, this is so important. This is about relationship with God on a soul level. You see the language? This is my God. It's not his God or her God. Like, this, it's a, the language of dwelling, abiding. He's my refuge, and this is deeply personal. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and fortress, not just my parents' refuge and fortress, not my pastor's refuge and fortress, not just the people around me's refuge and fortress, my refuge and fortress. I'm not saddling up beside someone else's fortress. I'm in my own with him. In fact, when we gather together, we're gathering together with God's people, and we're all entering into refuge in him. My God, in whom I trust. So he's saying, God himself is where my heart can rest. You see this? This is an ancient song. He's saying, I'm seen, I'm known, and I'm loved. Even though I'm not perfect, I am perfectly loved. And his perfect love casts out all my fears and covers my failures. So there's no need to posture. When he's your refuge, when you come into his presence, especially in Christ, or actually, I would say only in Christ, when we come into his there's no need to posture or pretend. There's no need to prove He's not boss. We're not hirelings trying to impress him or convince him that you're worth protecting. And if you are, then you're never really going to trust him and you're never really going to take refuge in him because you're seeing yourself as your own refuge. You may associate with him. You may even adhere to his principles and identify with his people, but not necessarily him. So when it comes to God himself, you may tend to think you even need to barter with him. You guys ever caught yourself praying like this? Right? You ever tried to barter with God to get him to protect you? It's kind of telling. Think about that. Like if you'll, you'll you know, God, if just get me out of the mess that I'm in and I'll never cuss again. You ever, you ever done that? So you're like, I'm not saying anything. Or maybe you thought, 
when you became a Christian, that, that meant he owes you something. Right? So when bad things happen, you get confused or even upset. Like, God, but I, I go to church. Right? I'm a, God, I'm a good person. How could you let this happen to me? Then maybe you think, it must be my fault that this is happening to me. Maybe I deserve this. Maybe he's upset with me. Maybe I'm even cursed. And you live on that torment of pride, then shame, then pride, then shame, then pride, then shame. But God doesn't want to relate to you as a boss in that boss hireling relationship. His protection and deliverance don't come to you because you deserve it. In fact, the more you think you deserve his protection, the less likely you are to receive it. Because his protection and his deliverance come as the result of his love and his grace. And that's it. And so the way we receive his protection and deliverance is also through love and grace. It's not by impressing him or earning it because of our obedience, but because we hold fast to him in love. Because he is our refuge and dwelling place. Not his law, not his ways, not his principles or religious instructions or how well we abide by his law. He himself is our refuge and our fortress. It's not about how we abide by his law, but listen to this. It's about how we abide in him, in love. Everything else is the symptom and overflow of that abiding. Don't get the cart before the horse. If you get it backwards and overlook the relationship, you'll also overlook the ways in which he desires to deliver and protect not just from necessarily the trial and tribulation, but through it. You see, in this world of spiritual warfare, our battle is ultimately a battle to abide. Let me say that again. In this world of warfare, spiritual warfare, our battle is a battle to abide. To live intimately connected to the love of God in Christ, not in a slave-master-hireling-boss relationship, but in a father-son-bride-and-bridegroom relationship. And so throughout the Old Testament, the Lord's often referred to as the God of, you know, someone else. Like, like Gentile kings would refer to the Lord as the God of Abraham or the God of Moses, right? Sometimes you'll even see people of, the people of Israel refer, refer to the Lord as the God of my fathers, right? And, which, and that's a powerful reference to a beautiful heritage in the Lord. Like, that's beautiful, but you'll notice if you're reading through the scriptures, you'll notice that it's not until a person has learned to trust in the Lord in a personal way that they begin to call him my Lord and my God. And when that happens, it marks this massive shift in their souls. Now, I can't stress this enough because this is where true soul-level protection and deliverance actually happens. And so that's what this song's about. That's what this psalm, Psalm 91, is a song, and that's what this song is about. It's about a battle, and it's about our battle to abide. 
That's often where the spiritual battles we fight today happen, really. Like, uh, it's, we tend to kind of think that they're out here. They're fought somewhere else, out in the world. But the truth is, that battle, our battle is won or lost in our battle to abide in the Lord. To rest in him, to trust in him, to rely upon him, and to take refuge in him. To look to him to be your strength, your provider, your healer, your warrior, and your satisfaction in the midst of it all. And so like, that's where we find protection and deliverance, even and especially in the midst of difficulty on a soul level. And so it's often through difficulty that we learn he is the only one who is a truly secure and trustworthy place. Like when the heat gets turned up and the pressure gets turned on and the battle rages and the winds and waves buffet and blow and all that uncertainty happens, right? Like that's when you learn where your hope actually is. Like that's when that fight or flight instinct kicks in, right? And how you fight and where you run says a lot. Psalm 91 isn't just some magical incantation of protection that you receive from the pastor. Hear me. Like, this is an invitation to cultivate intimacy in Christ. Will you receive it? And that's not something that you cultivate right in the midst of of, of battle, right? This morning, I want you to see that that is cultivated early. I want you to help, I want to help you to sing this psalm or song with your entire life. Like, I want to help you dress for battle and stand against your enemy by abiding in Christ alone. And yes, you have an enemy. You have a spiritual enemy. He is very real, and he hates you, and his top tactic is to destroy you through tempting you away from Jesus. Whether by worldly means or even religious means. Listen to Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 12. It says this. Finally, be strong. This is from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly or the spiritual places. See, Psalm 91 doesn't make sense if it's just about physical difficulty. I'm going to show you that this morning. If you read it just in like a secular, physical kind of way, you're going to get really confused. Like, it'll even feel like a massive contradiction or even a lie. Like God promised me that I wouldn't even stub my toe in this life, so either he's a liar and not trustworthy, or he doesn't love me and he's forsaken me. Like he takes care of those people, but not me. He, he seems to love all the people on Instagram. And he blesses their life, but not mine. Like you need to know this morning that you have an enemy, and he's very real, and he's very strategic. 
And there's a way that he wants you to read even, and even like sing Psalm 91. There's a way that Satan wants you to sing Psalm 91. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want to walk through this psalm with you, and I want to show you how your enemy wants you to sing this song, and I also want to show you how the Lord wants you to sing this song, even with your life. So for the rest of our time, i got two points for you. Two points for how God is calling us to live in this world of spiritual warfare. Number one, live with tactical awareness of your enemy, but not fear. Okay? Live with tactical awareness of your enemy, but not fear. Listen to me. The enemy wants you to sing this psalm in fear. But God wants you to sing this song in faith. Okay? Number two, live from victory in Christ, not just for victory for Christ. Live from victory in Christ, not just for victory for Christ. Or even yourself. Okay? So here's what I want you to get from Psalm 91. If you get nothing else, same point as last week. God doesn't always deliver us from the fire, but if Jesus is your refuge, he will always deliver you through it. Okay? God doesn't always deliver us from the fire, but if Jesus is your refuge, he will always deliver you through it. And I would say that that's actually the best tactic of deliverance, if that's how he decides to do it. So, Psalm 91. Here we go. Again, verse 1 and 2 says this, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So the Lord is the Most High. He is the Almighty, which means he's stronger than what you're up against. That's the indication there. There's also an implication here that you are up against some very strong things, right? Things that you cannot handle on your own. So what are we up against? Or rather, who are we up against? And, and, and then, of course, how then are we to live in this world of warfare? So number one, live with tactical awareness of your enemy, but not fear. Look at Psalm 91, verse 3. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. All right, get the image. All right, get the image of this. Like you, you need to realize, again, you have an enemy. Like you're, you're like a little bird in the wilderness, in the desert. And you have an enemy who sets snares all over the place to capture you. You know what a snare is? Like you, you run through it, it gets around your neck, and it just tightens up, cinches down, Right? The more you struggle, the more you fight, the tighter it gets. But the good news, as we'll see, is that Jesus has made a way through the wilderness. He's walked the path of life. He's paved the way through the wilderness, and he's cleared the snares off the path. And he says, follow me, and follow me closely. But again, your enemy have an enemy and he has set snares all over the place just to the side of that path even in fact i would say if you're just beside that path but not on the path that's probably where he set the most snares and he's even baited that snare with temptation first john 2 16 the apostle john paints a beautiful picture here 
for, for the way the Fowler's ensnaring tactics work. It says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And so what he, he, he's talking about a, a world that's systemically opposed to God. And, and, and these are the tactics that these, these worldly principalities use to turn you away from God or tempt you and then ensnare you, right? Number one, the desires of the flesh. Like, feels good, must be good, right? Probably not, right? Use wisdom, follow closely to Jesus. The desires of the eyes, looks good, must be good, right? Yeah. And pride of life. I think often we, we focus on desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. Sometimes I think that stuff is almost more blatant, but often it's the pride of life that is the one that takes people by surprise the most. Like the pride of life, it's kind of like if I can just be like them or if I can have success like that or affluence or influence or power or financial security, then I'll be impressive. Then I'll be whole. Then I'll be satisfied, right? Or maybe you think you've already achieved those things. And, and then you base your identity and security in your success. Maybe it's success at work, or, or, or maybe it's success even with your family. And, and success in those areas is really good. Like, we should pray for even prosperity in those areas, but don't base your identity and security in it, because if you do, it's a snare. Like, how well, even this one, this one's a tough one. This one's a hard one, because family is Number one, right? No, God's number one. There's your reason for that. And that's the best thing for your family. For example, how well your children do in school or how successful you are at your job, that's not the foundation for your peace. And when they become those things, even those very good things, they become a snare for your soul. Like, like take children. Again, like you, you love your kids and you want them to be successful. Whether you have kids or not, you can kind of get an idea of this, right? Like you want everyone to see what you see when you see your family and children. Like it's so satisfying to see them succeed. Like their success feels like your success, right? But then the pressure starts to build. Like maybe they're not as successful or mature or godly even as you thought as they're trying to figure these things out and figure life out and walk their own path trying to follow Jesus. And maybe that means you're not as successful a parent as you thought, Right? Like now all that security and pride that you had starts to shift. Right? Think about that. Then worry and fear begin to build up, not just for your child, of course that's a part of it, but then also for the reputation that you've been so proud of and based your identity and security on. That's a lot of pressure. And then subtly, that snare, it's like, wait a minute. It starts to cinch down, tighter and tighter on your soul. And this applies, again, to every aspect of life, career, family, relationships, sports, school. When even good things are made ultimate things that you look to more than you look to God or even other than God, they then become snares. 
Whole satisfaction is found in Christ alone, not in any other relationship, not in any other experience, and not in any other achievement. It is finished in Christ alone. So just, it's just Jesus, and that's it. Like, again, our ultimate battle is a battle, then, to abide, to stay close to Jesus, to drink deeply of his living water, right? And then, when we do, that's how we actually bring deliverance and grace to the people that might be caught in snares around us. That's how we help our children and our coworkers and our neighbors and our friends. The only way that we're able to help them in those places is if we're focused on the living water of Christ alone, drinking deeply. Because, and, and, and hear this, that's not because you're so wise. It's because he's so gracious and he's so satisfying and it's because his burden is so light and his yoke is so easy and it, like this is all part of the tactical awareness that he's called us to have in this world of spiritual warfare. Like, just because you get caught in a snare doesn't mean you're ruined. It doesn't mean you're canceled. It means... It's time to remember that his grace is sufficient. Remember, he's the one that will leave the 99 for the one. That's what repentance is. It's like, God, help me. I can't get out of this. And he's like, I got you, little buddy. This is all a part of navigating this life in Christ. See, most, if not all, sin happens because we're looking for things in the world that we're not finding in Jesus. And it's like we're walking down the path of life, even following Jesus, and, and just to the side, again, there's this temptation just sitting there. So you go ahead and grab it, right? No big deal. But you reach through that demonic snare to get it, and it got you. That's why no sin is a small sin. It's just bait to lure you away from Jesus and ensnare you. And, and like a distrusting sheep, we wander away from the Lord following those appetites, just like the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, verse 6. He said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And so, again, praise God, we've got a good shepherd who goes even after the one lost sheep. Amen? His grace is sufficient. But you need to understand that repentance isn't about shaming you. It's about letting Jesus remove that demonic snare from around your neck and leaning in and learning to stay close to him as he leads you forward in life on the path of life. So our appetites, though, aren't the only thing that tempt us to wander. Like this world's filled with chaos that either causes us to run to him or it will cause you to run away from him. Things like pestilence which are like plagues that create fear and uncertainty. That's what it's talking about when it says, when it talks about pestilence. That stuff initiates this deep, again, fight or flight response in the human soul. And so these things characterize the fallen world we live in, right? Like there's no shortage of bad news in this world. Like we're even given a snapshot of the state of creation and like a very condensed version in the book of Exodus through the story of how God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, okay? I want you to see this. It's a snapshot and a condensed, uh, like a condensed um, vision of how we, our entire world operates even now. Like remember Psalm 91 
some context here. It was written, uh, it was likely written by Moses as he led Israel out of captivity in Egypt into the desert on the way to the promised land. And so the way God delivered them from their bondage in Egypt was by sending these 10 plagues on Egypt. You just remember this story? And I want you to think about this. Again, in so many ways, this is a, a version of our current circumstance. But God chose to deliver his people from captivity in Egypt by sending these 10 plagues upon them. But guess who else was in Egypt at the time? Israel. The people that God was rescuing also had to endure through the plagues. So, so they caught the effects of the plagues, the frogs, the locusts, the bitter waters, the flies, all of it. Probably not with the same intensity, but like you can believe that the uncertainty of it all was real. Like the stench of death and rot and plague was all around them, everywhere they looked. If they had had news channels at the same time, they would have had probably similar uncertainties, right? And fear was just everywhere. It didn't destroy them, though, but it did affect them. But here's the point. It was all for their ultimate good. Like it was even the means through which they were being delivered. Guys, I'm telling you, get this, and you're going to see a snapshot that's really relevant. and, and, And follow, the ultimate plague of deliverance for them was death. The 10th plague, the final plague that caused Egypt to release its grip on God's people was the death of their firstborn sons. So God told his people to sacrifice a lamb and to paint its blood over the doorway of their homes. And then that night, uh, every firstborn child in, or every firstborn son in Egypt died, except those who had taken refuge under the blood of the lamb. And so even the Pharaoh's son, the son of the king, the one who was to inherit the kingdom, died that night. But that death, the death of the future king, and the blood of the lamb is what delivered Israel from their bondage. And it's all pointing to what Jesus would do for all who would receive his sacrifice by faith. Not just Israel, but all nations, including you and I. And so this is what... Uh, all of it is all ultimately pointing to Jesus, okay? That's the context of Psalm 91. That's what they're just walking out of as they're entering into the desert. Now back to Psalm 91. Israel's released from captivity in Egypt. They've just experienced all this stuff. They're heading into the wilderness, and Moses writes this song of protection, saying, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. Verse 4. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. There's a ton of spiritual significance here, okay? This is one of those, like, drinking from a fire hydrant mornings, all right? So just open your mouth. You're going to get wet, all right? You, you get some, but you're going to get soaked. There's a lot here. So lean in. This is, these are a people who had taken refuge in the Lord for their deliverance already. They've already hidden themselves under the blood of the Lamb. And so I, 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 want God, I pray God gives you spiritual eyes to see this. Like this may be so obvious to some, but I want you to see what's going on in this Old Testament song. As the plagues and pestilence rained down around them in Egypt, they were hidden under the blood of the Lamb like chicks underneath their mother's wings. That's the imagery Moses uses here in Psalm 91, verse 4. Not just for what he's done in their past, but what he will also do for them in their future. 
There was a story recently about some firefighters who were walking through a scorched forest out west and, you know, like the forest fires that sweep through. If you've ever seen any of that stuff, it's like a wave of heat and fire and flame that just and blows through those, those dry forests. And the firefighters afterwards were kind of like taking assessment of the land and they were walking through and they found a charred stump and it had a dead grouse on it. And her wings were spread out, but she'd been charred solid on the stump because as the flames passed over. But as the firefighters looked closely, they realized that under her charred body and wings were a number of baby chicks. And they had survived the fire because they had taken refuge in their mother's sacrifice. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings, pinions are like feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. Jesus says, hide in me, I'll take it. I'll endure it. You deserve to be consumed by it, just like everyone else. The whole reason for the fire is because of human sin. It is the righteous recompense of the wicked. But because he loves me, because God says I love you, I give my life for your life. You have only to trust and hear me, the fires of this life, they're coming. And they're either going to push you towards him or away from him. Jesus told us in John 16, verse 33, he said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Take courage, little lamb. Little chick, little child, whatever biblical image you want to use. Like, there's a moment right after Moses led Israel out of Egypt, and they found themselves trapped between this massive Red Sea, called the Red Sea. It wasn't a sea of red. It was called the Red Sea. They're, they're trapped between the Red Sea and the charging Egyptian army. And it felt like there was no way out. Like, can you imagine this? Like, you can almost hear and feel the fear and confusion. Like, why would God bring us this far to just let us die? You ever felt like that? I have. So let this be the reminder today. Exodus 14, verse 13 through 14. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Like sometimes when you feel like a helpless baby bird, you almost want to try and pretend to be like a fireproof lion, right? But the truth is, all you really need to do is just shut your little chirper and trust in the Lord, right? Like, have faith in his faithfulness. Because, verse 4, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. And his faithfulness is a shield 
and a buckler. He was faithful then, and he'll be faithful now. This is how protection and deliverance through this world of warfare actually happens. Again, this is a battle to abide. And remember, to take refuge, to get it deep in your soul, and to know that you know that you know that he never fails, and he never will. Like we sing the song, he was faithful then, he'll be faithful now. This is the song that we sing. Even in the midst of the fire, in the pitch of battle, in the midnight hour, of course you don't understand it. That's why trust is necessary. And I love this so much. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. This is probably the most comforting part of this entire psalm to me. This is talking about God's faithfulness. Not your faith, even. I love this because it speaks to one of the weapons of our spiritual warfare that's listed in Ephesians 6, verse 16. It says this in Ephesians 6, verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And so the shield, the shield of faith, the shield that we take refuge behind isn't just a shield that we hold on to, it's a shield that holds on to us. That's what that buckler is. The buckler is the thing that holds it fast to your arm. You're not just holding on to faith, faith's holding on to you. His faithfulness, man, that'll preach the walls down. If you get it in you. And see, that's what that buckler's all about. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. When the battle gets so intense that your faith wavers and you lose your grip, my God is so good that he never loses his grip of you because his faithfulness is true. His unconditional, unrelenting, never-ending, steadfast love and kindness endures forever. This is what true faith is always rooted in. It's not something we magically conjure up through our own sheer will, willpower. Like Our faith in him is always the supernatural response to his unwavering faithfulness to us, no matter what the circumstance looks like. It's not about your ability to have faith. It's about surrendering to his faithfulness even when yours runs out. It's not about having it all figured out. It's about trusting that he does. It's about receiving his love for you and taking refuge in him. Again, in the storm, in the battle, in the fire, and through the trial, even when it seems like all hell's unleashed around you, you can trust that it's all going to end in your deliverance and for your good because he's your refuge. And this is the promise for those who trust in him. And, 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 and hear me. This is on an eternal level. Don't be so short-sighted that you're just like, I, it, it, we'll talk more about this, but this is not just about what uh, getting that job. It's way bigger. Listen to this. You will not fear the terror of the night. So Psalm 91, verse 5. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your right, or sorry, a thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. And again, like how is this possible? 
Like, no evil shall be allowed to befall you? That almost sounds naive. Like, no plague come near your tent? Like, angels will bear you up on their hands to protect you from even stubbing your toe? Like, it, like isn't that the most plain reading of this? Like, so, so, so if I just trust in God, I won't even stub my toe? Like, not even poisonous snakes can harm me if I just trust in him? Is that what this is saying? Maybe we should break out some rattlesnakes. You guys ready? Let's, let's pass some rattlesnakes around. You know? Yeah? yeah. yeah. <laughs> My son, we, we'll talk later. <laughs> but it, wouldn't we find out who trusts in the Lord? According to this psalm, like we'll figure out who's trusting the Lord, who's not, right? Like, it says, you'll only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. So if anyone gets bitten and dies, it's clearly because they didn't trust in the Lord, right? Like, you don't have faith in God in the scriptures? Like, where's your faith? You don't want to pass around some rattlesnakes? Like, this is not just a lesson. Listen to me. This isn't just a lesson in spiritual warfare. This is a lesson in how to read and understand the Bible. Again, there is a way that Satan wants you to sing Psalm 91. And the reason we know this is because we've got Satan on record trying to trick Jesus with Psalm 91 in Luke chapter 4. Spoiler alert, it didn't work. Okay? Jesus shows up on the scene. He's a 30-year-old man, and he kicks off his public ministry through public baptism, and then he heads off into the desert. God has declared over him, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He said it audibly. And then the first thing Jesus does is it says that the Spirit of God leads him on the attack after Satan into the wilderness. Luke 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan where he was baptized and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And so in many ways, he's redeeming with his life all that God's covenant people failed to do with theirs. That's what's happening here. That's part of what's happening here. So he successfully and perfectly endures the in, in 40 days and nights of temptation, all that Israel failed to endure in 40 years of temptation in the Old Testament. And when they were ended, it says, he was hungry. Verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, watch this, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. Psalm 91. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Do you hear the implication? He'll protect you. 
And if he doesn't, then, well, he must not love you. But you know what's still ringing in Christ's head and heart? You know what he just heard? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Do you know that that statement is for you if you are in Christ? Satan was doing what Satan does. He's questioning what God's already said. Did God really say that? Does that really apply to you? Does God really love you like that? Like, you should test it. Verse 12, and Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And so Jesus trusts the Father, and he paves the way through the wilderness, and he's obliterating the snares on the path, saying, follow me and stay close. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. Satan wants you to sing Psalm 91 in a way that holds on to the things of this world as if they are your salvation. But Jesus shows us how to look beyond those circumstances and take refuge in the shadow of his wings. Like, yes, pray for deliverance from trouble and trial. Do it. God does, in fact, answer those prayers. He's supernatural. He is a healer. He will make a way, and sometimes he will deliver you from it and protect you from it completely, but often he protects you through it. If he decides to deliver you through these trials instead of from them, it's not any less of a yes to your prayers for deliverance. In fact, I would say it's a louder one because of how he's knitting your soul to himself in faith, which is the actual answer our souls need. Satan wants you to believe God isn't trustworthy. He wants you to think that this life and your physical comfort and safety is the only thing that matters. Because if that's ever threatened, then God must not be good or he doesn't actually love you. But Jesus makes it clear that there's more going on. In fact, while speaking to his disciples in Luke 21, look at this. Luke 21, verse 16 through 19. This gives you some insight in how to understand Psalm 91. Just before he's crucified, Jesus tells his disciples, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. That's a different way of understanding murder. Don't you think? It's like he's got a bigger perspective. And then he says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. What's he talking about? He's saying there's a lot more to this life. And it's through those storms that we find our refuge and our true strength. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storms, he's Lord of all. Those storms and battles are either going to cause you to run toward him or away from him. And so when we let scripture interpret scripture, watch this. Psalm 91 becomes more clear. We don't just stubbornly read it the way we want to or the way we think that it's the most faithful reading. We humbly let scripture interpret scripture. And also, what time is it? Yeah, here we go. We, <laughs> context matters. Like, how did the original ancient readers understand this song? You ready for this? Lean in, because this, this is about to go wild. Like, how would the ancient Israelites 
have understood this in their context? How would they have read verse 5, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday? That's a good question. And when we learn more about their context, you're going to realize they would have understood this through the lens completely of spiritual warfare. In fact, in the 1940s and 50s, archaeologists, there's a word, archaeologists discovered a bunch of ancient scrolls in the caves in a place called Qumran along the shores of the Dead Sea. And many of these scrolls dated back to as far as 400 years before Christ. And so... Some were scripture and some weren't. Like, remember, just because it's old, that doesn't mean that it's God's word, right? But they did uh, find in this ancient jar, they found about four scrolls that were all designated as exorcisms. And in that jar, so exorcisms, like to protect or deliver people from demons, okay? And in that jar of exorcisms, they also found a copy of Psalm 91, which makes a lot of sense when you read this song in its ancient context. For example, when ancient ears heard about the terror by night, they would have immediately associated it with an evil spirit. The Hebrew for terror by night is actually associated with a night demon, demon named Lilith, or Lilith, or Lilu. It was a demon associated with the night and the things that often, often happen in the night, okay? Like sexual perversion, and the perversion or prevention even of healthy families, conception, birth, even survival of babies. The etymology of the word lullaby even finds its roots in this phrase as an exorcism of this demon over children. Lullabies were literally a prayer for Lilith or Lelu or Lelit to be gone. In Hebrew, it literally is Lelit be gone or Lilith be gone. But as for those who hold fast to the Lord in love and take refuge in him, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. What about that one? Some translations even use the phrase midday demon for the arrow that flies by day. Because the word here used in Hebrew refers to a Canaanite god of destruction who's often depicted as an archer. His name was Reshev. It also sounds a lot like the flaming darts of the evil one that the Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 6 tells us are extinguished by our spiritual shield of faith. Because when you abide in Christ, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. These are Canaanite gods, enemies of God's people. Verse 6, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness. Again, the word for pestilence here in Hebrew is the name of an ancient Canaanite god of destruction called Dever. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. And yes, the word for destruction here is also a word that names a Canaanite god named Ketev. And so Reshev, Dever, Ketev, all Canaanite gods that oppose the most high God who is in control and is the most powerful, subdues and subjects his enemies under his feet. And they're all on display in this song of protection and deliverance. Now you might say, okay, so how does this apply to us today? Well, if our battle is not with flesh and blood, then there's a lot more happening than you tend to think. That shouldn't scare you. It should make you faithful. This is a song not of fear, but of faith. 
There's a willful and real opposition to our abiding in Christ. And that's, this is a tactics. Awareness of the tactics is that the way that you defeat that enemy isn't by being smarter. It's through abiding in Christ. That you need to realize that all their power has been shattered at the cross. In fact, this brings even more power to the Old Testament prophecies like Hosea 13, 14. We hear this a lot. We repeat it. I'm going to give you some depth to it. You ready? Hosea 13, verse 14. Old Testament prophet Hosea is giving Israel bad news because of their idolatry. And he's speaking to death as if it's an actual entity. And he says, oh, death, where are your plagues? The word for plague there is dever. Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? The word there is ketev, for sting. And then in the New Testament, Paul quotes Hosea, uh, that same verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 55. And he says this, he talks about the effect of the resurrection of Jesus. And he quotes Hosea, and he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's like he's personalizing it. You got nothing. Why? Those cosmic powers and authorities have been broken because of what Jesus Christ has done. So here's the point. There's a lot more going on, but Jesus has the victory over it all. This is the gospel, that God became a man, and he lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death we deserve to die. And he conquered death and the grave and all those authorities, principalities, and cosmic rulers of this dark age. He conquered them. He crushed them under his feet. And he paved the way through the wilderness to eternal life with God Almighty. And it's an eternal life that starts now through faith in what he's done for us as he fills us with his spirit. And he says, draw near to me, abide in me, stay close to me. And as we walk through these, this wilderness to the promised land, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Trust me. Abide. Again, our battle is to abide and invite others in because the victory's already been won in Christ. Which leads me to the second point. Last point, we're closing here. L live from victory in Christ, not for victory for Christ. He's already won. Like, you're not a victim of your circumstance, nor are you the hero of your story. Like, you're the damsel in distress who needed rescue, and it's already been accomplished. The battle now is to abide. Verse 14, Psalm 91, 14. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him, I will protect him, because he knows my name. There's power in the name of Jesus, amen? Ancient sailors used to get the, the words hold fast tattooed on their knuckles. Letters, H-O-L-D-F-A-S-T, on their knuckles uh, to remind them to keep a grip on their lifeline when they would go through a storm because a rogue wave at any moment, they're unexpecting it. They're not expecting it because it washed them off. And so they would hold fast and they would see it and they'd be like, oh, well, there's no wave. It's okay. I'm releasing my grip a little bit. And then it's like, that's when the waves take them, right? So reminder, hold fast. It's the reminder that, that as we've already seen and often sing, also, that we're not just holding fast to him, he's folding, holding fast to us. And so we remember his faithfulness is both a shield and a buckler. 
Verse 15. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Like, don't read over this. Sometimes we get selective reading or hearing syndrome, right? We ignore this entirely, and we'll say, like, if you don't, you ignore what the implication of I will be with him in trouble means. Like, this is not your ticket out of trouble. <laughs> this psalm is clearly saying, you're going to face trouble, but I'll be with you. In it. Verse 16, last verse. With long life, I will satisfy him. That word long there could even be translated as eternal. And show him my salvation. And if you've been with us long enough, or the past couple weeks at least, then you know that the word for salvation there in the Hebrew is the word Yeshua. In Aramaic, it's Yeshua. In Greek, it's Jesus. And in English, we pronounce it Jesus. I love that. That's one of my favorite parts about reading this. Like, it wouldn't be a stretch to read here. With eternal life, I will satisfy him and show him my Jesus. <laughs> and when we see Jesus, what do we see? We see the one who won the victory. And yet even the way he won the victory was a demonstration of his deep, secure trust in the Lord. Like 1 Peter 2.23. Look at this. Description of even how he operates in victory in the midst of the most crushing circumstance. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. His was a song of faith, not fear. And it's the song he's called us to sing with him. And the song he sings over us in Christ. So which song have you been singing? Which song are you harmonizing with in this life? Is it the song of insecurity with your eyes on the world and the circumstances of this world or the song of secure victory with your eyes on the Lord? Like maybe you've been viewing God as sort of like a necessary burden that you've got to endure in order to get what you really want in this life. Almost like, you know, you give your time or your money or your obedience and if you do, then God's going to give you a good life in the way that you want that good life. Guys, that's not Christianity. That's the American gospel, not the Christian gospel. Okay? Jesus is good. He's so trustworthy. And what he does give us is way better than anything you could ask, think, or imagine according to the power at work within you. But sometimes we don't understand it in the moment. So hear me. You need to understand something. God loves you too much to give you anything you want more than you want him. God loves you too much to give you anything you want more than you want him. That wouldn't be a blessing. That would be a curse. Right? So we trust him. I pray that you would sing this song as a beloved, protected, faithful child of God. A song of faith, not fear. So as we close, I just want to pray this over you guys. Would you stand and... and um, Again, the band can come on up. We're gonna, I'm going to pray this over you. Um, no matter where you're at right now, maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's fear, maybe it's distrust, maybe it's paralysis, pride, maybe fear of being wrong or, or a fear of just the future and uncertainty and all the things that are in this life. 
I want to invite you to receive like baby chicks, to trust in his light burden and his easy yoke. Like baby chicks don't need to be perfectly correct in all things. They just need to know in whom to trust and who to cry out to and who to hide in and who to hold fast to in love. Let's pray. God, we thank you that when we look around and we see the deserved recompense of the wicked, that that's actually what even our sins deserve. But God, our sins, though they are many, your mercy is more. And so God, I pray that we would stand on that, that we would dwell in the shelter of the Most High and abide in the shadow of the Almighty that you would be our refuge, that each person in here would declare when we face trial, when we face uncertainty, when we face trouble, that we would declare even when the heat turns up and we don't know what to do, that God, you are my refuge, you are my fortress, you are my God in whom I trust. God, show us your salvation. May we be enamored by you and your glory even in the midst of the trial. And when we're on the other side of it, and as we're on the other side of it, God, may we just rejoice in you in the same way. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.